We are back with episode nine of That's Interesting. And we today we get to chat to none other than Peter Cole, who is the CEO of Lancet Laboratories and a clinical pathologist by trade. We are so privileged to chat to him today. Uh, Lancet is the leading edge in Africa for um, coronavirus COVID-19 testing, and he is certainly at the forefront of it. And we can't wait to get into the meat of this topic um, and uh, shed some light on everything that's currently happening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to That's Interesting with Mark and Alan, where your hosts, the great and powerful Alan Fowlers, as well as yours truly, myself, Mark Fawzi, will be discussing and unpacking topics that really interest us, experiences we've had, current affairs in the world, as well as telling some dad jokes and talking some smack along the way. Our aim is to entertain you, provide you with some golden nuggets of value, and pretty much get you through your day in a positive and happy way. Please enjoy hearing us have some fun with this, and don't be shy to tell all your friends to join in. Peter, how's it going? Fine, thank you. And you? Good, thanks. Sorry, we had a, I was trying to unmute you at the same time, so we, we double muted there. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time today to chat to us. Uh, it's a real privilege to speak to you um, as someone who's um, very much in the front lines of everything that's going on at the moment. And it's been a crazy year. I'm sure, I'm sure it has been for you. Yes, I think I got back from skiing on the 15th of March, almost unaware of COVID and landed in a maelstrom and it's been going since then. Wow. Yeah, geez, I can imagine landing from uh, <laughs> landing from a vacation into a global pandemic and trying to manage that in South Africa is a, a hell of a welcome back. Well, interestingly, we met a Swiss doctor at the village we were at in Austria, and he'd just come from uh, his hospital in southern Switzerland mm. and was telling us about the COVID cases and the fact that his hospital was filling up and the ICU was full. But for us South Africans, it was still a a strange concept. To us, it was a Chinese disease. Yes. Hadn't yet, yes. Hadn't yet come to yeah, the front of mind. Exactly. As, as Donald Trump so eloquently put it, you know, it's, it's from China. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it. yeah well, I, I echo uh, Mark's sentiments. It's uh, fantastic to have you on, on the show with us, uh, Peter. We appreciate your time thoroughly. And uh, we look forward to, to unpacking this a little bit, especially you know, from your viewpoint and, and your experience thus far with, with COVID in, in South Africa uh, and as well as with your, with your company. But we definitely want to start off with the journey of Peter Cole, the scientist. How did that happen? Well, sure, that starts in third year medical school, I guess, when we first did pathology and I thought this is a very, a very nice part of medicine. <laughs> yeah. so I was interested from then and then, you know, after, after in the BCH, I did two years in the army, two years on the mines, being an orthopedic surgeon. Sure. I did pediatrics and gynecology and anesthetics. And then eventually after doing all of those things, got back to Cape Town and started doing clinical pathology in 1985. Did the five years there and then qualified and then came up to Lancet immediately. So I've been at Lancet since 1990, which is what, 30 years, 30 years now. Yeah, wow, Amazing. wow, wow, wow. And I think, I think you know, for, you know, for us that aren't uh, familiar with, with the, the epidemiology field, can you give us a little bit of a synopsis of, of what that means 
with chemical pathology field. Yes, yeah, sorry, chemical pathology, yeah. Well, it's chemical pathology is the study of the, the serum, the blabs, the urine, the, CS, the sinfuls, uh, CSF, you know, the brain. Yeah. So all, all molecules and chemicals, including proteins, hormones, DNA, uh, atoms like salt and potassium and magnesium and calcium. So anything, anything very small. My, my daughter's doing chempath as well now at VCT, and I said to her she must start a new discipline called nanopathology, which will be the science of the very, very small, you know, the, the femtomoda yeah. type. Just where we're going, uh, quantum, quantum pathology, that'll, that'll yeah. be the next phase. Yes, well, I mean, that's, that sounds deeper. something out of, a, out of an Avengers movie, to be honest, quantum <laughs> pathology. <laughs> And Peter, sorry, your, your oh, journey. Sorry, sorry, Mark. Sorry, Al. Your journey with Lancet um, and getting getting to kind of where we are today. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about Lancet as a company and and a kind of the evolution from when you joined it to where we are today and your role in the testing of COVID nineteen. Well, you know, when I joined in the 1990s, it was a small practice. I think we had se there were seven partners, you know, seven pathologists in the various disciplines. There's anatomical and hematology, yeah. microbiology, etc. And I think we had 400 staff members. Now we have about 120 pathologists and about 6,500 staff members. So we started off in yeah. Johannesburg yeah. in 1956, amazingly. Wow. As a, it started off as a, a, a nighttime or a part-time practice for some guys in the state service in those days. So they, they do their normal day in the state and then they do a bit of private at night. So they were part-time. Okay. And then slowly, slowly it grew. So then we started off in Hillbrow, not Hillbrow, in uh, JP Street, Central Joburg, mm. where the practice remained until 1986 when a bomb blast forced us into suburbia. So we moved to the, to the, uh, the Richmond area. Sure. So yeah, it was a small Joburg practice. It was a big adventure when we first opened a lab in Santon Clinic that was like really moving out of town. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, over the years since then, we, I became managing partner sure, in about 1994, so quite, quite early on. And I saw that we needed to grow fast, so we, we grew quickly to, you know, Polokwane, Nelspreet, Durban, Cape Town, Bloemfontein, and added services like, as you, you know, talk about COVID testing, it's molecular pathology, which is when I left medical school, left medical school for the second time doing Kempat, yeah. was a very nascent um, science. We were still doing all the tests with gels and reading the plates by hand. And I, I was doing yeah. cystic fibrosis molecular testing myself you know, in the lab. And we've moved from that to big automated platforms and next generation sequencing and hundreds of different tests available by molecular methodologies now. So yes. And it's, uh, it's accelerating all the time, as you know, yeah, can imagine. in an exponential way. Mm. And then also along the way, we uh, about 10 years ago now, we decided South Africa was too small and growing too slowly. So we started labs in the other African countries. And now we have 13 labs in, in every country from Cote d'Ivoire to Kenya to Zimbabwe, uh, Botswana, Swaziland, Mozambique, etc. Amazing. And that's been fun too. So we've grown those from nothing and introduced first world pathology into third world countries because they, they really were quite bad in the early days in terms of yes. techniques, no quality control. So we introduced automated analyzers, QC, 
a, a, a continent-wide network that allows us to check on what's going on and sign out results. Okay. Yeah. So that's been that's been ten years of hard grind and paying school fees, but it's been yeah. <laughs> very interesting. Well. <laughs> of course, I'm sure. And in terms of a like a, a global footprint or you know other other companies that you would have I don't know referenced in your journey, uh, were there other you know companies doing a similar thing that you kind of you know looked up to or looked to for you know kind of you know impetus. Yeah, we've, we've traveled around the world and looked at lots of labs for, for various reasons. And we, I must say, we find South African pathology very good. It's, it's up right up there with the rest of the world. Um, so we don't learn too much from other countries, really. That's we have in recent years, we've partnered with a lab in France called Serva, which is the biggest lab in France. It's also got Luxembourg, um, Holland, Belgium, uh, North Africa, yeah. Italy. So they're, they're about four times our size in terms of turnover. Sure. But they're a useful partner because we, we share the African business and we share technology and we, we share the cost of development, obviously, of, of African labs. So that's, yeah. we're enjoying that partnership. And we also, we also partner with them in, in a clinical trial laboratory. So they're doing all the testing for drug development, vaccine development, including our COVID vaccine development. And good old hydrochloroquine trials <laughs> yeah of course we're involved with that as well Brent <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you know I know for you touched on it you know when we started but in terms of COVID and South Africa obviously you landed back from your, your skiing trip and you know amidst the chaos that was going to be locked down and level 5 and, and all of that kind of thing um, how how is that that experience in terms of landing here be like right we need to do testing Obviously, it's going to be one of the. How did how did that conversation start? You know, sort of upon your return with Lancet. It actually started before my return because in the first week or so of the pandemic here, which must have been late February, mm. only the NHLS, the state labs, the NHLS and NRCD were performing testing, and they were trying to keep it to themselves. But after one week, by the 9th of March, they were not coping. They were they were having, you know, delayed turnaround times and backlogs. Of course. So we started testing on the 9th of March, which was a week before I got back. So there were lots of Zoom conferences and talking <laughs> from Austria to Johannesburg about starting up. Yeah. And we started up quite well, and we, we coped. And then the president made his Sunday night speech, I think, on the night of the 15th of March. Mm. And the following day, chaos broke out because everybody, of course, had listened to this thing and now I wanted to be tested. So we, we got, a, in that first week or two, a huge increase in testing, which was beyond our planning. And so yeah. we had backlogs as well for a few days. And it had to rapidly ramp up the number of analyzers and staff and get kits from all over the world to cope with the demand. Yeah. And I remember in those first few weeks, we were getting about 2,000 samples a day and not coping. Now we're getting six to 7,000 a day and coping very well. So there's been a... Big change in that two months. Of course, yeah, I mean, managing the volume. Yeah, and we expect it to double again in the next two months. So the surge is still coming, and we're trying to gear up to do more testing to, you know, to cope with that. Yeah, of course. 
Can I ask about the actual test itself? So, I mean, obviously, we, you know, other parts of the world have been testing already, uh, and with that, you know, getting the tests here. When you say we needed to get tests, what what is the actual COVID test, and what do you need for that to happen? Yeah, so we need it starts it starts with the patient. You need a nasopharyngeal swab, you know, to take the specimen from the nose or back of the throat, and those were immediately in short supply. So we we had supply for a while, and then we had to move to what we call oropharyngeal swabs, because just worldwide there was no stock of nasopharyngeal. So that was the first issue. Then uh, PPE, as you've heard about, you know, the lack of masks and gloves and aprons and yes, has been an ongoing problem. But then, so once you've taken the swab and you want to start testing, what you do is you put the swab into a, a buffer, we call it, and then stir it around a bit, and then put it onto an automated extraction platform which extracts the RNA, because this is an RNA virus, not a yeah. DNA virus. So it extracts the RNA from the swab, and then you use that RNA extract on a thing called a thermocycler, which takes a very small amount of RNA you've got in your buffer and amplifies it a million or two million times to get you a readable amount. So there are two, basically two phases to the test in the lab. There's the extraction phase and the amplification phase. Okay. So we were, then we ran out of extraction reagents first Jeez. and moved over to manual extraction as a result for the last month or so. And amplification has not been as bad. We have bought from America, Germany, South Korea, and at the moment there are lots of amplification kits, so the extraction was the problem. Okay. That, that is still in HLS's problem. They, they have enough amplification kits, but they don't have enough extraction kits. So we've been, as the private sector, talking to them about upscaling their manual extraction to catch up with their backlog, which you've heard about. Yes, of course. And how, how is that, how open is that channel of communication between the private sector and the, and the, the state? It's open. We meet often with the CEO of NHLS, Dr. Kenny Chetty, and discuss ideas. We've, we've tried pooling, um, purchasing, and, and sharing information about stock availability, shared stock with each other. So there has been as much cooperation as we could have done. I think the problem with NHLS is that it's a very federal system. You know, the, the Cape Town University or Tigerberg University Labs operate a bit independently from central Johannesburg NHLS headquarters. Okay. So to, get, to get everybody on the same, same level in terms of what extraction platforms to use, what amplification to use, all using the same thing, I think is a, is a difficult organizational logistic issue for yes, yeah. CEO. Hmm. But they are improving. I mean, we saw last, I think yesterday they did 20,000 tests, which is a lot, lot more than they were doing a few weeks ago. So hopefully they're on the rise in the, in the state sector. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Um, so Peter, just listening to all of this, obviously our numbers are starting to increase quite rapidly at the moment. Um, and, you know, for, it could be for, for one reason or another, but we, we obviously would think that because we're starting to open the, the economy a bit more and people are more out and about and less social distancing and less discipline and so on, um, what is your personal opinion, and, and maybe forgive me for asking you this directly, but what is your personal opinion on opening up the economy more? Do you think it's a good idea to be more pro-opening with certain kind of uh, restrictions and so on? Or do you think that 
people don't have enough discipline and that we should actually be slowing that process down? Um, it, it has been difficult to balance the uh, flattening of the curve with the economy. Um, I think the first, the first parts of the lockdown were good, but you know, towards the end of stage four, one could see that the disease was in the community anyway yeah. and spreading in the communities. And at that point, it becomes impossible to stop it. Yeah. With yeah. our lack of uh, testing capability and lack of isolation capability, mm. so then I think the economy took over, and one it was right to open the economy and encourage the people at risk to, to self-isolate and to take care of themselves. So the over sixties, yeah. the diabetics, hypertensives, etc. Yes, should take special care and remain at home. Obviously, everybody else should social distance and wash their hands. But you know, the Western Cape now is, is at about twenty percent, twenty-five percent prevalence. And Gauteng is about six, seven percent, mm. and we're about a month behind the Western Cape. So, Western Cape is going to hit its surge in about two weeks' time, one week, two weeks' time, and that'll last for about a month, or maybe six weeks. Okay. And that's that's going to be, as you say, a huge and exponential rise in cases, yeah. most of which will be asymptomatic. Some will be symptomatic. Some will die. Mm. And the hospitals are already getting full there. Mm. But that you can't stop now. You know, I think protect the sick, protect the elderly. Uh, project yourself as much as you can, but at the same time, you must earn a living. So, you know, the economy has to open up as well. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Peter, what do you see happening with regards to the surge? So, I mean, I've heard, um, I've heard about the fact that when we, when we start going into those exponential numbers, when the, when the hospitals start being overwhelmed, then we go into triage, um, which from my understanding is, is, kind of setting restrictions and parameters of who gets treated and who doesn't get treated and kind of prioritizing in that way because otherwise it doesn't work. Um, how bad do you see it getting? Because I mean, we've seen with countries like Brazil and obviously Italy um, and the States even, it, it looks quite horrific on the news. And obviously everyone who follows mainstream media would see that, but how bad can we expect it to get in your perspective? Yeah, you've heard about the, the Panda model and the other models now. Yeah. Mm. So we, we're expecting somewhere between 20,000 and 80,000 deaths and cases, I don't know, two to three million, I think it is yeah. the sort of estimate. So it depends where, where one ends up, you know, particularly in these models. Is it going to be on the conservative side or the, the non-conservative side? Mm. If, if it's on the conservative side, then the private sector hospitals can cope and there won't be triaging. Okay. If it's at the other end, there will be. But at the same time, the state is running out of beds faster than the private sector. And mm. we as the private sector are busy contracting with the state to take their overflow to the, into the private hospitals. So it might become a case of a mixture of public and private patients in the private hospitals and triaging again because of that. Yeah. yeah. Because the state is, is insisting on equitable treatment for all. Mm. So, yeah, I think, I think triaging is a distinct possibility. And as you say, it's not a... Not a nice thing. The hospitals are sitting, setting up ethical committees now to make these decisions about who, who gets to be on the ventilator and who not. Mm. Because that, yeah, that can be the life or death decision. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Of course. <clears throat> now, excuse my ignorance here, Peter, but obviously we've watched America uh, and, and their cases uh, you know, also explode. Um, what is the, 
What is kind of the reason for that rapid spread or the rapid spread that we've seen in the US? Do you know what I mean? In terms of the actual spread of the virus, is it is it because people are touching things and then t- someone is touching the same thing or is it much more of an airborne kind of situation? It's a complicated thing. I mean, the reason the Western Cape started first, I think, is that it's allowed international tourists to keep on coming into March. So they were coming with their COVID and infecting all the wine farms and restaurants and everybody. And by the time the lockdown happened, it was too late, the, the disease was in the community. I think a similar thing happened in the States that there was still, as you know, a lot of travel from Europe into the States quite late because they, they didn't uh, take the thing too seriously to start with. Yeah. So I think, that, especially in New York and areas like that, there was a lot of seeding of the infection, shall we say, mm-hmm. yeah. before the lockdown happened. And by then, the cat was out of the bag. But the other part is that the more you test, the more cases you find. So America is testing a lot of a lot of cases, so they are going to find more te- more yeah. positives. We're testing a lot less, so we're going to find less positives. So we don't really know. Do we have the same number of cases as the states? Yeah, they, in reality? Yeah, the extent. Yeah. That's the unknown. But I suspect that all countries uh, will end up with about the same prevalence. If you look at the antibody tests that are being done now in, in New York, Berlin, London, Paris. All of them are coming out at between 10 and 13% positivity. So that's been the extent of the population that's been infected, even though the sick ones were only one hundredth of that. Mm. So a lot of people got, got infected, have developed antibodies, but never knew they were sick. Yeah, I hear you. So now the, in, terms of the, in terms of the antibodies, you know, is, it, is it safe to assume now that if, you, if you've had COVID, that you can't get it again because you have the antibodies, or is, is that still being, you know, kind of researched? That's still being researched, shall we? We've just finished the verifications on the various antibody assays that we are trying to get SAPRO, which is the regulatory authority, to release for use. And first of all, not all patients develop antibodies. So it depends how it seems to depend on how bad your infection was. If you were as we call it, triple gene positive, because you know, we look for three genes for the virus with the PCR. Okay. If a person's sick, symptomatic, and has all three genes positive, they are likely to develop antibodies. If they have, for example, only one gene positive and are asymptomatic, a lot of those people don't develop antibodies, although they have the virus, obviously, and some of them even become sick and end up in, in hospital, but they still don't develop the antibody. Yeah. So antibody response is variable. And because the disease is so young, you know, it's from last November in China. So far, people are main, people that have the antibody are maintaining it for six months, seven months out. But one doesn't know will that last for a year or two. Yeah. Or two. yeah. And also, I don't think these antibodies are what they, are what they call neutralizing. But for an antibody to be effective against the next infection, it has to be a neutralizing antibody which actually stops the virus in its tracks. Okay. These antibodies that people are developing, it seems, are not neutralizing. They, they'll bind to the virus, but they won't kill it, if you like. In, in the is that, um, is that how, how normal is that? What other viruses have shown the same kind of behavior in the past? Well, flu is, uh, is the supreme example. You, know, you, you have to have your flu vaccine every year, because every year the, the virus mutates slightly, and, but also your immunity isn't that good. Or that yes. long lasting. So, flu is a good one. Um, then there are, in this country, we have four or five other coronaviruses that circulate every year. 
and cause mild um, upper respiratory tract infections. And they also don't produce great antibody responses, so you can pick them up every year. Yeah. So a lot of these upper respiratory tract type viruses don't produce a great antibody response. Okay. And what has made what what has made COVID so deadly? It's it's probably no more deadly than flu, but it's it's what happened with the Spanish flu in 1918. If the whole world population exposed to a new virus for the first time and everybody gets sick, then a one percent or point one percent mortality is a lot more people. Sure. So now sure. because we have flu herd immunity and partial immunity, you know the old and the and the Otherwise, it all gets sick and die of flu, but it's a much, much smaller population we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay. So hopefully with COVID, if we get some type of herd immunity, the next wave, as they call it, won't be as bad and not as many people will be infected Yeah, or die. For sure. I think for, for me as a, you know, really, you know, not well informed when it comes to viruses and the transmission thereof, but seeing how the COVID has spread globally, it's, my surprise was not that this virus happened, but the fact that the world seems so ill-prepared for something that we have. I mean, we, the, the world is really small based on the fact that there are you know, thousands of flights all the time and, and everyone's on top of each other all the time. But we seemed uh, ill-prepared for this. You know? how, how do you think we would be better prepared for this in the future? Or do you think that there are now going to be you know, systems put in place hereafter Till forever that are going to, you know, try and put blockers in place that to stop this from happening in the future. As I said to Mark, Mark earlier, I'm not an epidemiologist, but uh, you know, this virus hopped from bats into pangolin and from pangolins into humans, and along the way of its journey, it mutated and mutated and mutated and got more virulent, and eventually mm. it done. And the virulent virus was born, so that that can happen again and again. And I think as we lose habitat and forests and with climate change and with wet animal markets, the chances of new novel viruses as we've had with Ebola and SARS and now this one become more and more a possibility. You know, yeah, I agree. Getting, we as humans are closer, in closer contact with animals and uh, that results in, in more easier transmission between animals and humans. So I don't know how one, how one protects the world, as you say. You know, Obviously, increased monitoring and surveillance of emerging viruses. Sure. Uh, increased, better ways of, and faster ways of vaccine development, better antiviral drugs, all of those things would help, but they're not easy to do. <laughs> no, of course. And I think also with, with much of this, and especially, which I'm, I'm excited to hear about this next little piece we're going to talk about is the vaccine of COVID, is that it's a time-consuming process, you know, you know, making a vaccine for something. And... That's what I'd like to hear from you now is, you know, what is that vaccination? I mean, the building a vaccine process, what does that look like? And what is the timeline for a COVID vaccine, as an example? Again, you're asking a non-expert, but what we have done at, at Lancet to bar, bar plants <laughs> about clinical trials yeah. on is we've been busy, we've been part of the testing for the malaria vaccine, the HIV vaccine and the TB vaccines over the yeah. last 10 years. Okay. We still don't have any of those vaccines after 10 years of testing and development and changing the... So, that, so that's really positive, isn't it? <laughs> it shows you how hard it can be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Yeah, so I mean, um, we don't know what this coronavirus vaccine will be like. And then, as you know, there are various vaccines being developed around the world. Everyone's 
excited, everyone's saying that their vaccine is working very well and producing a good response, but I don't know whether those responses, again, like the antibody response, are going to be neutralizing antibodies, long-lasting antibodies. You know, will, will the vaccine give you a short-term protection or long-term protection? All of those are questions, I think, that will only come out in the next few years as more and more people get recruited into the trials. Yeah, so by, sure. the, by the sounds of things at the moment, it almost sounds like, um, for now at least, this virus almost has no rules. There's no like set kind of trends because almost every time we, we think something about it, um, we get proven wrong in some instances and so on. Um, so I suppose only, only time will actually, only time will, will start, you know, knowing more solidly. Um, There's a, I saw an article the other day about the it's called the transcriptome of the of the virus, which is the way it translates its RNA into proteins, if you like. Yeah. And it's it's a very active virus in terms of splicing the RNA backwards and forwards, creating different messenger RNAs, different proteins at different stages of its life cycle. Yeah. And that's why we see these different genes. We see what the, you know in the PCR test, the M gene or the S gene or the E gene or the open reading frame gene, as they call it, yeah. and they express differently at different parts of the disease. So if, if it's doing that at a genetic level, yeah, it can be mm. a jack of all trades, a, a, a chameleon. Yeah. Mm. And so, I mean, I heard uh, Trump saying the other day on, on CNN that uh, he's pretty confident that they'll have a, a vaccine by December available to the public. Um, and, and he says things like that and I, I can't help but, but uh, be skeptical. Uh, what's, what is yes, your I take on that? I said, I'm, not a, I'm not a vaccine expert, but just yeah. at, the moment, at the moment they're doing phase one trials, they call them, which are safety trials. Yeah. They inject 10 people and they monitor them very carefully to make sure there's no ill effects of the, uh, the vaccine or the vector or the carrier. And then, only once they've done that, will they go to stage two where they then look at the the uh, body reactions to the virus in terms of antibodies. Mm. And if they find one that produces good antibodies, then they'll go to phase three trials, which is recruiting thousands or tens of thousands of people and again testing for the efficacy. So that whole process you know, will take two, three years, I would say, before you have a proven good vaccine. Yeah. And then yeah, to ramp it up long, to scale, to actually process. make enough, to make enough vaccine to, to vaccinate 8 billion people Will also take time. So yeah, of course. <laughs> there might be a privileged few that get the vaccine early, but it won't be the massive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then a question that I've been wanting to ask you um, was with regards to the symptoms. Um, so obviously, the fatal part of this of this virus is is for someone with a co comorbidity or a pre-existing condition, etc. Um, what is it? What is the turning point where it becomes the point of no return for a patient who has it? Uh, how does that process happen? Because obviously, some people get it and they get they get a little bit ill and they recover from it. Um, yeah, but symptoms-wise, how do you know that it's gone too far? Well, as you know, eighty percent of people will get it and never know they've had it. And they're just yes. asymptomatic. Then the other twenty percent that gets sick. 99% of those will just have a mild flu-like illness and go just take a discipline, stay in bed for a few days, get better. Mm. Then the 1% that gets hospital, hospitalized type ill, they present with a hypoxia, and it's a, very, it's a lack of oxygen in the 
in the serum of the blood, if you like. It's, it's not, a, yeah. not, not hypoxemia, which would be the oxygen that binds to the hemoglobin molecule. It's, it's just yeah. a, a, PO, a drop in the PO2. Yeah. But it's a, it's a, they, call them, they call them happy, hypoxic, happy hypoxics because they're, they, they drop their PO2 from the normal 90 down to 70 or 60. And they don't display it. You know, they're, they're smiling and chatting to you while they've got this low oxygen level. And it happens because of a thing called a shunt. So the blood pumping from the right ventricle into the, into the heart, into the lungs, sorry, should be oxygenated as it goes to the lungs, then go to the left ventricle and go back to the body. Yeah. But the blood's being pumped from the right ventricle into lungs that are collapsed, but not collapsed in a, in a, in a gross way. Individual alveoli seem to be collapsed or compromised. Mm, okay. The blood flowing through them doesn't get oxygenated. But there's enough airflow to allow the CO2 that the body produces to be exhaled. And so you have a normal CO2, but a low oxygen. And it's, it's, it's our brain CO2 receptor that makes us pant. So if your CO2 level were to rise, you would start panting. Yeah, okay. But it doesn't. So they don't pant. They, they, their oxygen drops and they look normal. So I think in the early days of the disease, people were a bit uh, fooled by that. Mm. So they would be hypoxic, be admitted, and then die the next day. But suddenly that hypoxia became extreme and they collapsed. Mm. And now, so now the thinking is to put people on, on high flow oxygen early, put them on their tummies, make them, make them breathe on their tummies because the heart then falls forward and has less compressive effect on the lung. And let them recover on their own. Because once they get onto ventilators, the ventilators themselves seem to have a bad effect. They damage the lung alveoli, they cause a vasculitis. And yeah. people that go onto ventilators don't come off them very easily. Sure. So it's a long answer to a short question. But yeah. so of the ones that get hospitalized, again, 80% will recover and go home. Mm. And the ones that need ventilation will die in 50 to 60% of cases. Mm. Sure. And, and that's therefore a move onto this prone position, high flow oxygen without ventilation as much as possible. Okay, and, and the percentage that actually goes on to ventilation and dies, is that death inevitable with this virus for them? Or, or could it perhaps have been prevented if they went on to uh, ventilation sooner? So do, what I'm saying is, do they get to a point where it's the point of no return uh, treatment-wise, or were they always doomed to, unfortunately, succumb to it? It seems to be a progression in, in certain people, and I'm sure it is due to the accompanying obesity, diabetes, hypertension. Their lungs are previously damaged, their vascular linings are previously damaged, so all the effects of the virus are exacerbated. Yeah. And so when they go into ventilation, you know, on ventilation you're sedated, so you are asleep and being ventilated. Yeah. And then you're on antibiotics and anticoagulants and steroids. And every time you would then try to wean the person off the ventilator, you must reduce the ventilator um, pumping, if you like, or mm. amount of pumping and try and let them breathe by themselves. They just refuse to breathe by themselves. So you end up not weaning them and yeah. sure. having yeah. to make that switch on, switch off decision. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So that's scary. That's but um, <clears throat> yeah, but at least, at least it's a, a tiny percentage. Um, yes. <laughs> Trying to look for silver linings. <laughs> for sure. Now, Peter, obviously, we are, our background is certainly obviously a bit of business, uh, a bit of fitness uh, and training and that kind of thing. So I'd, I'd love to get your, your take on uh, opening gyms. 
going forward uh, is is that is it wise? Uh, obviously, you know, social distancing, washing, that kind of thing. Uh, and then what can what could people potentially do? Because people have to, like you say, have to earn a living, have to get on with their lives. Uh, what are some simple things that they can do to, you know, ensure that their immune systems are kind of fighting fit fuel? <laughs> I'm not an advocate of any of the uh, over-the-counter medicines that people are taking, like vitamin D and... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't, there's no evidence to prove that they work. Yeah. And, you know, as a non-epidemiologist, to open a gym... I mean, obviously, one would think you know, screen at the doorway symptomatically, uh, social distancing at least two, three meters, wear masks. But then, with all the, as you said, the fomites, the people are going to be sharing gym equipment, and so that would have to have to be kept very clean and swabbed between people on the circuit. Doing yes. mm. And you've got the central air conditioning systems in the gyms, which are a potential spreader of the virus. So, I think it would be. You need an expert in these types of closed, sure. air-conditioned environments to, to make the call, but I would say it's a level two thing, not a level three thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, agreed. No, agreed. Agreed. Yeah. What are, you, what are you doing, Mr. Cole, to make sure that you are fit and healthy at this point in time? I am luckily able to go to work every day, but I'm happy not to have the lockdown phases, <laughs> which has helped my, my uh, mental, mental state. And when I, I'm a swimmer, I, I swim at Planet Fitness at the Wanderers every mm. second day, 2.5 kilometers. So when that stopped, I first, for a few weeks, watched my wife with her Zoom uh, gym teacher and was a bit scared. <laughs> then eventually got recruited. So now I'm a few days a week Zoom gym person doing all my, I don't know what you call them, biceps curls and yeah. tummy dresses and sit-ups and... Yeah. A lot of stuff I hadn't done for 30 years, which was a bit of a shock. I swear, sure. I did. So all of the years, I had lots of unused muscles that I discovered, which are now getting a little toned. So, you know, <laughs> I think, I think um, it's, it's quite cool from, from this whole lockdown. We've kind of seen um, that a lot of, obviously, a lot of people have been doing this training at home. And you can actually train pretty effectively at home. It's, it just comes down to the motivation and all that. Um, but, but obviously if you, if you're a bit fitter and your lungs are, your lungs are fitter and your circulation's good, um, you know, in my, in, in my perception that makes you less likely to, to have a bad, a bad kind of experience with COVID-19. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, a good, a good cardiovascular system, aerobically fit has to help because that, that's that's what the virus is attacking your lungs your heart and your vascular epithelium so yeah if you don't have coronary thrombosis or atherosclerosis yeah and your heart is fit it'll enable you to fight much better especially if you are one of the unlucky ones and has to go to hospital and be ventilated yeah. for sure for yeah. sure can i just ask a question here about masks okay because i've seen at by this point, every shape, <laughs> form, and iteration of a of a face mask. What kind of face mask? Obviously, I'm not talking about brands or anything. I'm just talking about what does a face mask need to have to be effective in preventing you from catching the droplets? Uh, it has to. The virus is about 18 nanometers in diameter, so the mask needs to have a pore size of less than that, basically. 
Okay. And most of these masks don't, you know, the N95 masks that have a little filter at the end of them, mm. they are the best, but I'm not sure that even they are able to exclude the virus totally. So anything less than that, you know, a surgical mask or a cloth mask, is really only there to stop you from when, you know, when you're sneezing or coughing from spreading those macro droplets around the place. They don't stop the virus from getting out, which is why if you had the virus and you were symptomatic and you were a bit sniffly and you touched the outside of the mask, you would, you would get virus on your fingers wow, and then okay. touch somebody else. So that, that's the reason they say don't touch your face with a mask on. Yeah. So, yeah, so the mask, the virus in general would go in and out of masks, no problem. So the mask is just there to stop the macro droplet spread when you sneeze yeah. and to stop the macro droplet, I suppose, if somebody else sneezes near you. But that would be less effective because the virus is in the droplet which lands on your mask which you then okay. breathe in. So. Yeah, so I mean, my, my whole opinion, because I've, I've, I've done some reading into the whole mask situation because I thought it was ridiculous. So some people are like, some people are cutting socks and putting a sock <laughs> over here, yeah. just or like, you know, putting a bandana. And I'm like, surely, surely this, is, this can't be working. So are we actually all just wearing masks to make ourselves feel better or are they serving a purpose? That's kind of where I, where I was at. Well, I remember the first month of the, of the pandemic, everybody worldwide, the scientists were saying, don't wear masks, they make no difference, just socially distance and wash your hands. And that's probably still the case. I, I think the mask thing is a crutch. It, it, it reminds you that you should be behaving yourself and social distancing and washing your hands. But whether in, in itself it has reduced infection or mm. spread of the disease, I, I have not seen any literature to support that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think if anything that I'll take away from <laughs> from the conversation on the mask is that, like you say, it's a crutch or a physical reminder to be vigilant with your hygiene and your distancing around others. Yeah, and it does, to some extent, stop the macro droplet spread, you know, over, over, sure. over the two meters if you're sneezing or coughing. Talking, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, all right. So Peter, what is... What is it? What b- before we wrap it up? Uh, I'm sure that's exactly what Fawzi was about to do. No, what, no, what no. Is a, what, what, is a, what is a day in the life of uh, of Peter Cole look like? Is this before or after COVID? <laughs> so during during. <laughs> D- during COVID. During COVID, for me, it's been a lot of uh, Zoom meetings. Well, let me add that for the first two weeks after my arrival back from Austria, I was in self. Quarantine because Austria by then was a high risk country. Oh, yes, of course. So, the first two weeks was a lot of Zoom meetings. I became a Zoom <laughs> and a Teams and a Hangouts expert very quickly. <laughs> and it's, it's been a political, political disease. And I think the mechanics of diagnosis and management are relatively easy, but the, the politics of dealing with funders and hospital groups and the Ministry of Health and the, and the the uh, provincial ministries of health and the employers and mines and everybody that has you know something to do with COVID and, and treatment and testing um, has taken up a lot of time. A lot of a lot of large Zoom groups, 160 people sometimes, all giving opinions on what policy should be developed, what regulations should be, should be developed, what is good, what is bad, who should be tested, who shouldn't, you know, what's the capacity of the country to test. So that's that's been a lot of it. Um, it's died down a little bit in recent weeks, but I think 
as the surges hit now, it's going to be increasing again because as the number of patients, sick patients increases and the population becomes aware, so the heat goes back onto the politicians and they have to be seen to be doing something. So I think we're going to see more talk about COVID in the next few months. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, for as it becomes more and more real, because for, I mean, for the most part up until, you know, we haven't seen the the massive death rates and the, you know, the mass graves or anything that's, you know, you know, sensationalist within the media, that kind of thing. We haven't seen that here. Um, and it's kind of been, well, it's happening there. And I've even noticed around in my own community uh, in Cape Town that, you know, it's level three. So, you know, people are going to your, their house for dinner and, you know, people are like, oh, well, cool. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. Yay. You know, but, but, that's, <laughs> but that's still coming in. And in light of that, what do you think the chances are um, of the government saying, you know what, this is getting crazy. Everyone back to level four, level five, whatever it is. Um, just to go back to the Western Cape again, you know, they now have, you might have read, 1,500 healthcare workers infected and or, and or isolating at home. So that's another problem with this disease. Oh, man. As the surge hits, so that the, the healthcare workers get infected and they therefore have to go home and quarantine, and there aren't that many of them. So we're having this unfortunate situation that as the peak develops, so the healthcare worker number drops. Mm. So that's going to be a challenge, and that's why the Western Cape government is calling for retired professionals to come back to assist on a voluntary, voluntary basis, etc. Wow. Um, I don't, you know, so that, although that's going to happen and we're going to struggle, I think, to, to manage all the cases, we can't go back to level four and five economically, it's just not possible. And it's yeah. too late. You know, I think what we can do now is test and test targeted hotspot areas, as they call them, yeah. and isolate as much as possible and try and stop the disease from spreading in the community. Which will be difficult given the demographics of this country, but of course, I think that's a good thing to do. Hundred percent. And also, we ask me the things that I spend my life doing. The other, the other big problem with this testing part of this disease has been the so-called false negatives and false positives, which I'm sure you've read about in the yes in the press. So this this PCR test has it's complicated, so let's put it that way, because there are, there are, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> there are many kids out there, and they're all looking at different genes, but not all of the same genes, and they have different sensitivities. So one test might pick up 500 viruses per mil of, of saliva, say, mm. whereas another one picks up 10,000 know, as, as a lower limit. So if you're lucky or unlucky enough to have a sensitive test, you'll test positive. Then you might decide you don't like this positive result, so you'll go to another lab and using a different method, they'll give you a negative test the next day. It's just under the positive negative, so what do you do? So we have a lot of this shopping around for the for the result people want. So if you <laughs> if, if you're pre-admission and you want to go into hospital for your hernia operation, you want a negative. If you get a positive, you'll go shopping around till you find the negative. And vice versa, if you're symptomatic and you feel as though you've got covered and you get a negative, you're gonna think, no, this is wrong. Let me go and get a, another opinion. Yeah. So we've had a, quite a lot of that, mm. which confuses the market, confuses the doctors, confuses hospital groups. Of course. So that's, been, that's been an issue for the standardization of these tests. Mm. You can't have it that every lab uses the same assay with the same sensitivity and specificity, and therefore results are comp comparable around the country or around the world. That just is not the case. So. That complicates matters a little. Of course, of course. Why, why, is, so, so why is that not, why, why can't they do that? So why can't we standardize the test? Because people can't agree on it. Well, people are starting to say it should have been standardized. And it's one of the learning things 
out of this, this epidemic. But when, it was first, when kits were first developed, you know, companies around the world decided, oh, well, we like the, we like the N gene and the E gene, so we'll develop an assay for that, and others would have the E and the S, and others would have E only or S only. So we literally have all these different tests with different wow. genetic targets at different sensitivities, and that makes it quite difficult to compare. Yeah, cheapest creepers. Mm. I suppose like with anything, anything that's new and unknown, you, it's it's going to be a lot of trial and error to get to the to get to the right format. Correct. Yeah, I think. That, yeah. I think over time people will probably. It's already happening. That I think they decided one or two of these genes are better targets than the other ones, and starting to narrow in on those. Mm. So maybe by the time the next wave comes along, if ever, we'll have a more standardised test, and mm. they'll be easier to interpret. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Hundred percent. Yes. Well, Peter, it's been a hell of enlightening. Uh, you know, from my side, thank you so much just for sharing. And I know, of course, you're, you're not an expert uh, in the c- certain fields, but uh, you have a wealth of knowledge, and I really appreciate, and we really appreciate you sharing that with us, uh, us mere mortals trying to understand something as complex as as a, a pandemic, as well as the testing thereof. You know, within South Africa. You know, a lot of the a lot of yeah. the times, I think sometimes ignorance is bliss, um, because sometimes the reality is quite um, quite daunting. But it really, yeah, uh, exactly what Alan said. You must be one of the busier people in the country at the moment, and we really do appreciate you coming coming onto our show. It's it's been a real pleasure chatting. Pleasure, Mark. Pleasure, Alan. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Good luck with work going forward. Good luck with, uh, you know, dealing with all of this and the testing and and may your company see every success going forward. And we wish you and your family very well through this time. Thank you. I think it's the calm before the storm. We're about to have three months of hell, but uh, let's hope we all get through it safely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good luck. Have a lovely evening, Peter. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Cheers, guys.